notes from an occasional human. Welcome to the show. Today's episode is special, as I got to sit down for a good long chat with one of my favorite humans, Rostick Winnicky, technical sales engineer at Lava Computer Manufacturing Incorporated, joined me via video link from Toronto for a long-form conversation on Ukraine, science, and technology, and life as a Canadian-Ukrainian business person. Rostick is one of the brightest folks I've met, and possibly one of the busiest. As if he wasn't busy enough as a business co-owner and operator, technologist and engineer, when he's not traveling internationally for business, appearing in media to contribute expert insights on science and technology, or innovating new technologies, Rostick also has undertaken a university-level program in psychology, part of his lifelong quest to understand the world better, particularly the people in it. In part one of our conversation, Rostick uses his unique, holistic approach to help tell the story of Ukraine and the most recent conflict, along with the moving story of how his grandparents escaped World War II-era genocide and political suppression to start a new life in Canada. Uh, so my name is Rostick Winnicky. Uh, so I work for a company called Lava Computers. Uh, we're a Canadian-based manufacturer. I've been here, well, officially three years. Uh, that's my job as a technical sales engineer has been here for three years. However, it is a family business uh, owned by my family or run by my family. So I guess I've been around at Lava for a little bit longer than that. Uh, since childhood. Uh, I graduated uh, in 2020 in mechanical engineering. I got this idea that uh, psychology is a lot of fun, something I really enjoy. So I actually decided to do a second degree in parallel with working the last three years. Uh, so wow. that's still in progress. Um, hopefully pretty soon we'll be done. So this is actually a bachelor's degree. So kind of when I was looking into this, one of the questions was, should I just jump into a master's right away? And the advice that was given was, first of all, it's your decision. There's a lot of things that you should probably learn background first, especially if it's something that you are possibly considering. Uh, a bachelor's might be a good idea, especially if you can kind of truncate it down to just the core courses. I love that. And it feels like with your job, you're very much at the intersection of people and technology. And I try to tell people in my day job, I always write this, you know, technology is never just tech. It's where the tech touches people. And folks like yourself have that kind of polymath approach and you see everything's connected, like Dirk Gently, uh, the Holistic Detective Agency, everything's connected. Uh, well, it really is. And when I talk to people in business who have that perspective, they tend to do better over the decades, I find. Very much so. I mean, uh, and that's why I've, I insisted actually when I was starting, or officially starting here, that it was technical sales engineer because it's got sales, it's got engineering, it's got the technical component because everything's intermixed. I mean, sales, you deal with people. And every salesperson will say that you deal with people. So psychology, you deal with people. If you're in a management role, you're inherently dealing with people, the good and the bad. I mean, we are we are humans. We have our bad days. The engineering side, yeah, there's there's the physical side. But by the end of the day, unless you're really some obscure part in the middle of some massive machine, a lot of the times you are still interacting with people. So bringing in those two disciplines going, how does a machine interact with a person? How does a person interact with a machine? Understanding all those things or just having those base concepts around is very, very helpful in my opinion. Now, I want to stretch uh, with, with some of this talk of empathy and, and learning about other people's experiences. You have a remarkable family story. Yeah, so I'm I'm fully Ukrainian by background. So, you know, ethnically Ukrainian, I guess would be the term. So my grandparents from my father's side were born in what is now today Ukraine. I mean, at the time, the world was a little bit different. Different countries existed. Different empires existed, actually. Uh, my mother's also born in Ukraine. So I'm this hybrid of generations in terms of born in Canada. But, I mean, my mother... Grew up in the Soviet Union, left in the 90s, um, actually because she met my father, 
um, and came to Canada. But her family is all in Ukraine. Uh, my grandparents' side, so my father's side, um, both were born in uh, Western Ukraine, two different portions of, of Western Ukraine. And basically the stories are both rather grim in some aspects. Um, so from my grandmother's side, um, they had to leave because basically due to a whole bunch of different pressures and, and the realities of the political situation at the time, uh, my grandfather at a time was basically asked by the by the, the town, the small town that he was in, because he was the only one who spoke German to be German, Russian, Polish, Ukrainian. So he was kind of, he spoke all the languages that, that were around and were important um, to become the mayor. So he was basically elected the mayor because we need someone who can communicate with everybody. Because of that, the Soviets, so the Soviet Union, decided that he was a traitor uh, just by the fact that, you know, that's the way it happened. So there was a death warrant put out. Again, this is 1940s. So life is cheap. What I mean by life is cheap is that people were being, you know, butchered, were being shot. Um, cleansing was occurring. This is not, it's actually not the KGB. This is the, what would be the NKVD at the time. I don't remember what it means in Russian, but it is the precursors to, it's the Soviet state, state police, secret police, and they later become the KGB or they are the go through a bunch of names, but they become the, what is known as the KGB later on. This is in, in the 1940s, um, there were basically death squads. I mean, not basically, wow. there were death squads. So wow. you have the concept of political prisoners being executed. Uh, there's there's whole stories there. And so basically, he, they had to run. So when when you've got the Soviet counterattacks occurring uh, in 1943, 44, my grandmother, or she as a little child, her family has to leave because there's a very well understanding that things are not going to end well. Now, before that, during the Nazi occupation of Western of Western Ukraine, they witness, you know, the rounding up of people of Jewish faith. They see the execution. So, I mean, both sides are very much so laying wow. into the populations, looking for their their boogeymen and and executing them. And Ukraine is in many ways caught in the middle, uh, as as many other countries. Poland being a, being another example. My grandfather more south, southwestern portion of, of uh, Ukraine, uh, very similar concepts. Uh, him as a little boy uh, saw some serious atrocities by the Soviets. Uh, they too have to escape just because of the political situation. My grandfather, they end up in, in, uh, in Vienna, and my, grand, my grandfather, is, my great-grandfather rather, is called up by the Soviets. Again, Austria at the time is a neutral zone, uh, so you know it's, it's, it's a neither here nor there. And the Soviets call up my great-grandfather. Hey, we want to talk to you. Come down to the embassy. They walk in. My great-grandfather walks out, tells my grandfather, who is a young boy at the time, something doesn't look right here. Go home. Uh, that's the last conversation my grandfather has with his father. Uh, he walks back into the Soviet embassy, which is Soviet territory by international law. And he is promptly arrested and is sent to the Gulag. The Gulag is basically a concentration camp in the Soviet Union where Soviet political prisoners, now political prisoners, a lot of different people fell under that, that, that purview. So again, political prisoner is, is, is a very broad terminology that gets used in the Soviet times at the time. And uh, he spends 10 years, a full 10 years in, a, in Siberia in a Soviet Gulag. Uh, so imagine the conditions, you know, we, 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 some, 
we've, we've all heard of the, the different atrocities that occurred there. We know very little about which one, what it looked like, but it was definitely not a pretty time. Uh, he comes back. He is never allowed by the Soviets after his release. Uh, he is never allowed by the Soviets to go back to, to Lviv, which is the, the city where basically he was from. He is only allowed to settle down basically in the outskirts. He is not allowed by the secret police to cross the administrative boundary of Lviv and lives the last X amount of years of his life and actually passes away in uh, a literally a, a town right, I mean, it's a borough of Lviv, effectively. Uh, the rest of my family uh, escapes, ends up in the what's called the DP camps, so the displaced person camps, and ends up coming to Canada, uh, becoming part of the diaspora. Uh, my first language uh, was Ukrainian growing up. Uh, it's still the language I speak at home. Uh, it's a little bit easier just because my mother, she speaks very good English, but it's just easier to speak Ukrainian. But that also means that a huge majority of my family, a lot of uh, cultural components, a lot of uh, things, shall we call them, are are still either from or tied to Ukraine. So this is very personal to you and your family. Yes. This is part of your identity. Very much so. Very much so. That's steep and powerful. So would, would you say that this has kind of affected the way you approach life and people in general? Because it seems like you really lean into this idea of empathy and not falling into otherizing and so forth. I mean, we're all human. Uh, if, if I was put under the microscope, I think we'd find many flaws. Um, at least that's what I believe. But yes, I mean... It's, it's a very interesting concept because um, actually it was a discussion with, uh, we're doing interviews with, with people uh, here at work and a discussion about, you know, just the breadth and width of people's names. Canada, I mean, it's a very multi multicultural society, really, really interesting people. But my father explaining, you know, Roman. Today, Roman in Canada, okay, just another name. I mean, it's another name that you may or may not have heard of. Really cool. We keep going with life. But in the 1950s, or sorry, 19, 1960s, Roman was not a normal name. So, you know, experiencing those concepts of, well, Roman, what, 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 kind, of, what kind of name is that? Like, that's weird, right? So living through certain aspects, I mean, it does get passed on a little bit. Uh, living through those aspects of you're not allowed to go back home or go back to a country where a lot of your history, a lot of your culture is there, even family, because someone has basically decided that, well, I mean, you can enter, you'll never leave. Those have a profound effect. Those have a, a cultural, have a, a historical effect on us um, and the way we look at the world. And, and this, so your father was not able to really go back, it sounds like. Uh, no, I mean, he was able to in the late 80s as the Soviet, as, as Perestroika uh, was, was occurring in the Soviet Union. But uh, so in other words, as the, as the changes were occurring, uh, Perestroika is one of those. Part of Glasnost with Mikhail Gorbachev and sort of softening yeah. So, so Perestroika and Glasnost are the two things that occur at the same time. One is more of an economic, the other one is more of a social. Oh. Uh, the fact that they hit at the same time and it's, it's part of you know, Gorbachev's big attempt to modernize the Soviet Union basically leads to the, or one of the things that leads to the unraveling of the Soviet Union, or what is theorized to have. I mean, there's, there's multiple reasons. But uh, So when the late 80s were occurring, uh, yes, my father had the opportunity to go to Ukraine. And as the 90s, obviously, as Ukraine gains independence, uh, very much so, spends a lot of time in Ukraine. Uh, but that was really the first time. My, my grandparents, uh, until they were much, much older, were not able to visit their, their birthplaces, the, the places where they grew up, where they thought that they would live their lives. One of the things that's so powerful to me hearing you tell the story is, despite all of this adversity and hardship that some of us couldn't even imagine one iota, 
your family seems to not only have survived, but thriven and built something special and something that makes the world a better place. Where does this resilience come from? Because founding a, a company that sounds very successful, giving back to the community, supporting people back home, that's not easy. Uh, it's not. But at the same time, I mean, I, I honestly believe that everybody has that within them. Um, and, and this is kind of the dark aspect of it. But people are incredibly resilient things, uh, entities. The issue is that unfortunately, it sometimes takes the worst of humanity as well to see just how resilient. I mean, it's it's also a concept of survival. I mean, this is one of those those things that I remember my grandparents, or remember my grandparents talking. It's more of a conversation now that there's a war, an active war, again, uh, happening on the territory of Ukraine. Uh, and very, by, by the way, uh, as an aside, a lot of the same concepts, reasons for suppression, tactics even, are being used once again. Wow. Uh, against the populace and, and, you know, by the other side. So, it's, it's one of those things of um, you, you do see that resilience because you have to, because you have to survive. People will survive. People will do absolutely incredible uh, gut-wrenching things as well. Um, you know, do things that if they had a normal, normal life, quote-unquote, in the sense of someone wasn't shooting at them, someone wasn't putting them into an impossible situation, they would never have done it, but they have to. Uh, because they have to survive. Um, so these are, you know, these are impossible choices that people are going through. And that builds up a certain resilience, a certain toughness that we all have. It's just, I'm quite thankful that uh, the, the converse side of it, the way I look at it goes, I am quite grateful and thankful that I am not put in a position where I have to make choices between life and death. It would make me incredibly resilient. It would make me, you know, be able to do leaps and bounds, but at what cost? At, at what type of effectively trauma? Well, Phil, help me as an ignorant uh, American because this took me so unawares. I, I think this was during a period where, for me, it was out of left field because I thought, oh, well, that's a part of the world that's you know it's warming up and things are getting so much better and there's sort of westernized liberal democracy. Where did this come from? Seemingly out of nowhere, why did this happen? Well, and that's the thing, and and this is you know I it didn't come from out of nowhere. And, and, and it's not a, we told you so, um, and you know, there's, there's so much, so much going on in the world. So you can't be an expert in every region. I under, there's a lot of regions where I, I honestly plead that I don't know enough, but it didn't come out of nowhere. So a little bit of a chronology, a little bit of a history, um, because it's important to kind of put the facts in a chronology in a way, because it really does help explain some of this. So you have the collapse of the Soviet Union in the, 19, in the early 1990s, and you have this era of the nineties, which are really the Wild West in Eastern Europe. I mean, you have a complete change in the system and that evolves into what's happening in Russia, what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in the post-Soviet space that's defined. That has its effects. Ukraine slowly starts moving towards democratization. A lot of bumps in the road, we admit to that, but it becomes a democratic country. It is. It splits off from the Soviet Union for that reason. Ukrainians have had a very strong self-identity for a very, very long time, by the way. Um, we're talking about more than just 90s, where we're talking about 1918, when you have uh, 1917, 1918 uh, to 1919, when you have a Ukraine actually declaring independence, a, a small portion of it, in and amongst you know World War One at the time, right? And what's going on in what is Tsarist Russia and then the Soviet Union? I digress. That's happening. Russia's actually kind of going through a little bit of the of the same. It's a turbulent time. Then you get Putin arrives in 2000. I mean, you've got the 1999, 2000, uh, the New Years. Uh, he becomes prime minister a little bit before that. 
uh, and, and then he becomes president. He is a former colonel in the KGB and the Soviet secret police uh, in Germany, uh, because Germany was part of the Warsaw Pact at the time uh, during the Soviet Union. Uh, he comes back, he becomes basically an assistant to uh, the, the mayor of St. Petersburg. That gets him launched into political life. And then he becomes the heir, the chosen heir, not really the chosen heir apparent, but he gets everything is indicated that Putin, Vladimir Vladimirovich, is going to become the next favorite for president. Uh, and he takes over. And very, very quickly, Putin starts suppressing. He starts pulling people in, starts pulling in the media, starts controlling the, the beginnings, the vestiges of a dictatorship start occurring. And this is not something that occurs right away. It is, you know, slowly the tentacles get worse and worse and worse and worse. Where am I going with this? You know, Russia starts slowly becoming this problem. Ukraine goes through a couple of popular social revolutions. Basically, people in 2004, what becomes the known as the Orange Revolution, and it's part of a wider thing in Eastern Europe, in, in Europe, in those areas, post-Soviet space, what's called color revolutions, which is people going, we have enough of certain corruption. We have enough of certain things that are going on. We want to be in a democratic nation. We want to basically have what is occurring in the Western world as we define it today. Again, Western world is a, is a very general concept. But liberal democracy, that kind liberal of Liberal democracy, exactly. Uh, so 2004 occurs because of, again, internal political uh, strife that occurs, a pro-Russian candidate um, and a pro-West candidate, shall we call it. So that's the first color revolution. Um, Ukraine keeps becoming more liberal, a liberal democracy, social democracy. And then 2014, and then we have actually the loser of the 2004 revolution. Uh, it was not a physical armed revolution. It was a social revolution. Actually becomes president, democratically, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. We should. Uh, he wins an election. He goes, skews very heavily to, towards Russia. He walks back in 2014 certain uh, reforms that were very pro-European, very popular at the time, basically angling Ukraine back towards the Western space. And there is another social revolution. Students come out onto the streets and protest. All of a sudden, police come out weeks later and beat up those protesters. Very violent. People look at this and go, "This we can't stand. Again, Ukraine has a very strong social aspect in terms of people are very socially motivated. They, they, they care about things. And again, this is where the, the, the misinformation starts coming in. So mm. people, regular citizens, citizens, excuse me, come out into the street in support of the students saying, this is wrong, this cannot happen. And mm. this evolves from a pro-European to a, what's called the revolution of dignity, which is basically 2014, we, people, people should be treated with a, with a level of dignity. The government should see us as, as people who are treated with dignity, which includes not beating up students. You know, all of this occurs. Unfortunately, this occur this is this occurs all on the Maidan. Unfortunately, this ends in a very bloody way, which is called the Nebesnya Sotnya, which is basically the Heavenly 100. Where that name comes from is one day the certain elements of the security services, uh, whether that be the police, there's a lot of we're not sure, but basically a command is given and peaceful protesters start getting shot by snipers by automatic fire. There is a hundred, approximately 100 people who are gunned down, uh, some actually by snipers. In other words, we're talking about headshots. Uh, so people with very good training shooting innocent civilians. Uh, and this leads to the to a much wider uh, kind of revolt. The government falls because of just populists going, this, this is not okay. And Yanukovych, who is that president, runs away to Russia. Russia seizes the initiative. And using the Black Sea Fleet in Crimea, takes over Crimea. 
So if we look at the, I, I know this is a really long way of explaining it, but what I'm getting at is that this war actually started in 2014. Wow. Because in 2014, you have the annexation of Crimea. Ukraine does not fire a shot, by the way, in that wow. war. Wow. Because we realize that, you know, Russia's playing a game here. You know, the green, little green men, we don't know what's going on. I mean, this is a very brand new concept. Is Crimea like an eastern portion of Ukraine? What's the it's importance of Crimea? Well, it's actually more cent- It's If you look at the map of Ukraine, it's a very centralized portion. However, okay. Crimea also have, has its own ethnic group called the Crimean Tartars, Tatar. They are a historically ethnic group that has existed for hundreds of years. Um, that's been their region. Uh, this is, you know, if, if you know a little bit about the Cossacks, or Ukrainian Cossacks, the Prisvesic, uh, you've got them fighting that region there's 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 a lot of history there uh that you know you can have spent hours on black sea fleet which is in crimea it is is still there from the soviet union it is basically loaned out that that harbor is loaned out um rented out actually to the russian military and the russians use the fact that they've got about i want to say thirty thousand troops i i'd have to fact check myself on this one um but a lot of troops and they basically rip off their insignias and these little green men people very well armed and later it comes out it's russia these are special forces these are russian government military doing this under obviously the command of the president who who, by the way has always had designs and beliefs that the soviet the collapse of the soviet union was a geopolitical mistake he's on record in saying this that that is the biggest catastrophe of catastrophe of the 20th century and has designs of basically coming back to the good old days of the Soviet Union. Ukrainians tend to disagree with that interpretation of history that those were the good old days. And again, again, examples of Stalinist times, executions, my family being an example of people who look at those good old days and say they were never good, there was nothing good about them. And we were a suppressed people, our identity was suppressed, removed from us. But 2014 occurs, Crimea gets split away in an illegal referendum. Almost no countries in the world uh, do do not recognize this referendum. At the same time, special forces, what we now know to be people under the pay or actually still part of Russian special forces and Russian special services, so the FSB, GRU, and SVR, those are the old remnants of the KGB, um, start trying to foment a revolution, a popular revolution in the eastern provinces of Ukraine, what is known as the Donbass. So there's actually two, what's called Luhansk and Donetsk. Think of them as like, you know, all of a sudden, Georgia and South Carolina, two states in the Union, all of a sudden having unrest, having a revolution, um, an attempt at a popular revolt. It's actually not that popular. Without Russian support, it's not going anywhere. And what's hap- what happens is basically Russians start aiding, abetting, and funding all these armed groups, all these people, and their special services trying to break away, start cleaving off pieces of, of Ukraine. That is what's called the uh, APO occurs, which is uh, the anti-terrorist operation trying to suppress this armed rebellion, which is being funded by an outside state actor. And that's basically the start of the war. And it's a war that actually turns quite hot. I mean, there were people who were dying. These were real shooting matches. We had all of a sudden tanks appearing out of places. This is this is the era of MH17. So the uh, the Dutch, uh, so the Malaysian Airlines, which had primarily Dutch people flying. Uh, flying on the aircraft, being shot down by a missile that is claimed to be, you know, by Ukraine or equipment stolen from the Ukrainian army during this revolt, yet all this information that comes out, all this open source research and and, um, and the tribunal that follows proves that this is a missile launcher brought in, operated, 
and commanded by Ru Russian forces by a Russian anti-aircraft brigade. Um, so very heavy Russian involvement. Unfortunately, it kills a lot of people. I mean, this is a civilian flight that gets wow. shot down. Uh, everybody dies. Um, it, it's a tragedy. There's, there's no other way of putting it. Well, where's the European Union? Where's NATO? Why is this not like a furor among, you know, United States and allies? Like, um, this is a complicated question. Um, first of all, Ukraine is not a NATO member. Ukraine has always wanted to be a NATO member since basically uh, at least the 2000s. I'm, I, I, I'd have to double check if it's not at the 90s. Uh, I'm just not sure. Um, but there has always been, you know, we wanted to. We, we didn't get that far yet. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this gray zone. There's also a very efficient and effective misinformation campaign led first by the Soviet Union. Again, the Soviet Union was trying to suppress the Ukrainian identity. Uh, so we're talking about since the, the 50s, the 60s, the 40s, that, you know, Ukraine doesn't exist. This is all one big people. So, you know, why, why you know, Russian speakers, mm -hmm. I, what's this Ukrainian language? It's a small little breakaway thing. Eh, it's mm -hmm. not really real. Uh, lies, not true. But that the, we're talking about decades of propaganda. And then Russia takes over this and keeps this concept off of East, East and West. We've probably heard of this. Anybody who's kind of followed a little bit uh, of the news probably hears a little bit of, you know, Russian speakers, Ukrainian speakers, Eastern mm. Ukraine, Western Ukraine. Um, that's, that's something that existed maybe before 2014. Mm. It does not exist anymore. Um, I mean, speaking to family, I have friends both from East and West Ukraine, uh, Western Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine. Um, this war, these, these incursions have really changed the demographic and social makeup. I mean, as wars do, unfortunately, uh, Ukraine. Um, but there's a lot of this funding of misinformation, a lot of propaganda mm -hmm. that's pushing all these narratives. And that's why some of that, unfortunately, can just the, the, the decision making that occurs, which is, you know, these are breakaway regions. These are regions that are, well, they're Russian speaking, so they don't want to be part mm -hmm. of Ukraine. Um, really skating over the fact that there's a lot of foreign intervention. There's a lot of stuff that really isn't a natural occurring thing. It is something that a state actor is supplying armament for, people for, mm -hmm. money for, left, right, and south. Wow. Even just listening again during production for this episode, I was moved by the raw humanity in the story. Thanks for joining me for this in-depth look at the war in Ukraine. Next time, we'll conclude our powerful conversation with Rostik on the Ukrainian defense efforts. In the meantime, if you're curious to learn more or would like to make a donation, there's an official donation stream set up at United24, the official fundraising platform of Ukraine, at https colon forward slash forward slash u24.gov.ua. That's u24.gov.ua. And as always, I'm your host, Daniel Brown, writer, editor, media guy, content boffin, occasional human, and author of Novel Interventions. Daniel has a writing page. Notes from an occasional human.